Over the past couple of years, I've had the privilege of um, going to Germany. Our Every Nation family has a school we call the School of Empowerment. And myself and, and others who helped craft this school, we've had the privilege of traveling around to different parts of the globe. And last two years in Berlin, we were doing, we've, we've done this school. But the, year, the year before, we went to a little place outside of Berlin known as Wittenberg. Now, Wittenberg is not a very big place, yet it is the place whereby which what you are was born. Now, I'm going to use a word. You are all Protestants here. I said, one minute, don't, don't curse me. No, 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 it's okay, really. <laughs> you are all Protestants here. The mere fact this morning that you don't see a, a big crucifix with Jesus hanging on it and you've never heard us, heard us talk about Mary except really at Christmas and we don't pray to saints here. These are things that are uniquely associated with the Roman church, the Catholic church. Well, a man named Martin Luther began to challenge some of these things thinking, you know, I'm, I'm seeing some things here that I'm not seeing in scripture. Now, he certainly wasn't the first and yet it was through the crafting of what's known as 95 Theses, whereby which he laid out what he believed from Scripture should be the foundation of our faith. And legend holds it that he took these 95 Theses, he nailed them to the, to the door of the cathedral there in Wittenberg. Now, having been to the cathedral and seen the door, the door is made out of metal. So first of all, he didn't nail nothing to that door. And so it's a great story, but the reality is he mailed the 95 theses or sent them by courier to Rome where they could be examined. But we had the privilege while we were in Wittenberg of being in a little chapel that happened to be the very chapel where Martin Luther prayed, where he got his inspiration, where he worshiped, and where he probably crafted these 95 theses. And we had the opportunity to actually have a time of prayer and worship in the same chapel where the seat of the Reformation came forth. Pretty powerful. Now, why am I talking about all of this? Out of the Reformation, out of what is now known as Protestant Christianity, which you and I are a part of, there came five primary if you wish, phrases or slogans. They're known as solas, which in Latin simply means only. And these are the five, I mean, the, the, the reformers, Luther, Calvin, others, they didn't craft these, but they came as a distillation of everything that these men believed and they put forth. These five solas are as follows. First of all, sola fide, which means by faith alone. Sola scriptura, by Scripture alone. If it's not in the Bible, we don't do it. Third, solus Christus, meaning by Christ alone, through Christ alone. Four, solo gratia, by grace alone. And the fifth, soli Deo Gloria, which means glory to God alone. These five solas, these five phrases sum up what the reformers did to break away from that, where the church had, if you wish, not, I won't even say evolved, but devolved. And hence, Protestantism was born from that place. There were some pretty cool worship leaders as well that had their roots in Reformation theology. 
couple of them maybe you've heard of, minor composers like J.S. Bach, George Friedrich Handel. Handel wrote a little piece of music called The Messiah. Maybe you've heard of that. You know, now you say, well, that's really not my style of music. It's okay. Let's find out what we're listening to today that's still got juice after 250 years. All right. And so that's why that every year I still pay my 95 bucks and I go down to the National Cathedral and hear the Messiah perform live every December. But beyond musical taste, you begin to see that these composers understood something deeply about what they were writing. That they weren't just writing monuments and masterpieces to their genius. But they actually inscribed their music with the initials SDG, which stands for Soli Deo Gloria. In other words, they were writing this music not to say, look, I can do this. Look, I'm the man. But they were writing this music to God alone be the glory. And as a result, we look at that music. We hear that music done centuries later, and there's still an anointing that's residual upon it because the motivation and the genesis of this music was found for the glory of God. Isn't that fascinating? Soli Deo Gloria. We've been examining worship over the past few weeks here at Grace. And yet, it's this understanding right here, to God alone be glory, that has to be formational transformational in our worship. God's glory, what, what is that? You know, we hear this word glory, and if you've been around certain types of churches for a while, you've heard, glory! We talk about God being glorified and the glory of God, but it's one of these theological phrases of what does it really mean? What does the glory of God fully entail. John Piper, who's a, a gifted contemporary Bible teacher, he makes a great stab at it. He says, the glory of God is the infinite beauty and greatness of his manifold perfections. Like, okay, that's cool. I still have no idea what it means. So even after, you know, a great teacher and a great theologian's giving it a shot, I'm still no better off. But so then we come to another definition by a prophet pastor. His name was David Wilkerson. He's passed away. He was a pastor of Times Square Church up in New York City. And David Wilkerson comes up with, I think, an even more satisfying answer. He says, no man can rightly define glory. Thanks, David. More than he can define God. Glory is the fullness of God, and that's a subject too high for our finite minds. Ladies and gentlemen, there are things of God, about God and God himself, you're never going to wrap your little brain around. It's designed to cause your brain to explode. It is the limitations of flesh to be able to fully comprehend the spirit. And sometimes the deepest theological response that you can give is just simply, I don't know. Do you realize sometimes we'd be a lot better off if we would just tell folk, I don't know, rather than trying to look smarter religious and making up a bunch of stuff that leaves folks in worse shape than when they started? Just say, I don't know, and step off. Come on, parents, practice it with me. I don't know. All right, thank you very much. But I believe that glory is the very essence of all that God is. That's my definition. It's as good as anybody else's because I don't know what I'm talking about. 
It's the very essence of all that God is. The beauty, power, perfection, and holiness of which mortal man cannot fully behold or comprehend. So, well, Pastor Jim, what about the presence of God? Isn't the presence of God the same as the glory of God? Presence is an aspect of the glory of God, but I believe that there's yet more. Now, we know Moses had something special going on with God. We all would agree with that. Face to face, breath to breath as a a man speaks with his friend, Exodus 33. And God is, you know, as, as, as he happened many times, he's kind of fed up with whiny Israel. And he's like, you know what? Forget it. You know what? I'll send an angel. You boys go on in. I'm just not going with you. And Moses, out of the depth of relationship, pleads with God in Exodus 33, 15. If your presence does not go, don't send us. Moses understood something here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other peoples on the face of the earth? And so God hears Moses. He hears something in the heart of Moses. He says, all right, I'll go. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll do as you've asked. And then Moses is feeling, you know, you you get a little moment with God. Moses is feeling strong. He says, all right, now show me your glory. Show me your glory. I mean, Moses, Moses is pressing through to something. Now understand, Moses understands the presence of God. He understands communion with God. He understands the voice of God. But Moses realizes there's yet another place with God he hadn't gone yet. There's something of God he hasn't experienced or seen yet. Now show me your glory. And God says... I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. So we see part of the definition of glory is all the goodness of God. Once again, can't get your head around that. He said, but there's a problem. You can't see my face for no one may see me and what? Live. So you know the story. He put Moses in the cleft of the rock, covered him with his hands. So when the glory of God passed, Moses could live to tell about it. See, there's something deep here about the glory of God and how man relates to that glory. Another story about Moses. We move over to Exodus 40. The tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Presence of God comes. And this is a place. Moses had been in and out many times, but it says this in verse 35. Moses could not enter the tent because the cloud has settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Let me just tell you, one of the ways you know that you've moved from presence to glory is that folk can't do nothing. Pastor Robert can't play pretty. Pastor Tiffany, she can't sing. Pastor Brett, he can't preach. Nobody can move. You're just hoping to survive it. I mean, we're not getting our little happy Hebrew two-step on. That's all the white folk can do is just shift from side to side. That's all we got. So work, just, just help us here. We can't get our little happy Hebrew Tuesday. You can't do anything but hope to survive it. Second Chronicles 7, the dedication of the temple. Fire falling from heaven, consuming the sacrifice. I mean, you wonder when you put your offering in, does God find it acceptable? Let me tell you, when the roof comes off and fire comes out of heaven, you probably would know. 
And in this moment, trying to dedicate this temple, what happens? It says the priest could not enter because the glory of the Lord filled it. The glory of the Lord, something to be both desired and feared concurrently. What a paradox. And as we're going to see the true goal of our worship and our life and of and as worship is to be solely Deo Gloria. And yet there are challenges to this whole God alone understanding, this whole glory alone motivation. And two of them I'm going to talk about and end with God alone. First is what I call God or. God or. This is simply misplaced glory. Now let's look back at the very beginning. God giving some commandments for us to live by. What was the very first one that he handed down? Thou shalt have, you know it, no other gods. No other gods before me. You see, and God understood something that it wasn't just a matter of, I know what's in the heart of a man. Because once they move into that place, they're going to look around and find something else to worship other than me. God understood that. Now, for you and I, we don't live in a culture that's necessarily trying to find something that's been carved out of stone or wood or what have you and set up a little altar in our house. Most of the time, the altars we have are 60-inch flat screens. And, you know, we have, I mean, we, we've, got, we've got different types of altars that we create in our culture that represent some type of God or some type of worship. So we're very easily distracted. Can we all agree with that? I mean, we raise children, you know how that is, attention span of gnats, and so we got all that. All right. You shall have no other gods. But it wasn't just that God knew what was in the heart of a man. There's something about God and God's glory that he's not going to share. Exodus 34, 14. Don't worship any other gods for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. His name. Wait a minute, I thought his name was love. I thought he was Jehovah Jireh. I thought he was Jehovah Nisi. I thought he was Jehovah fill in the blank. I thought he was all of these, all of these names of God. But you realize one of the names of God is my name Jealous. And God's not just jealous for you. He's jealous for himself. Now, if that were an attribute we were to see in a man or a woman, we would think that's not real attractive. But God understands something here that's beyond your understanding and even mine. His name is Jealous, but his name is also Truth. You know this, John 14, I am what? The way, the truth, the life. He didn't say I'm one of. He didn't say I'm a truth. He said he used a definite article there. He said I am the truth. But you look at this in the context of worship, in the encounter he's having with the woman at the well in John 4, what did he say to her? The father is looking for a specific type of worshiper. He's looking for a worshiper who will worship in spirit and in, well, that word truth is the word aletheia, which means this, it's the same word that Jesus spoke of, I am the truth. Well, the father's looking for some folk who will worship in spirit and in Truth, what is that truth? It's not an opus of knowledge. It's not a book. It's not a theological system. It is the person of who God is. 
That has to be foundational to our worship. The one true God. And yet, so many things tend to obscure that. You use the word God in our culture today. Oh God, yeah, God. God good, yeah. I, God, yeah, God. Mm-hmm. Something bigger than I am. Your idea of God and my idea of God, they may be different, but we're worshiping God. No, we're not. Sorry. That's where it breaks down. Let me be a little bit more specific. Jesus. You know, you use the word God. Folk don't get real excited. Because they've got their own construct of what God is. It's whatever they want to be bigger than they are in the moment. And hopefully somebody that will do their bidding. So folk don't get real excited about God. They're cool with that. You say, Jesus. All of a sudden people, oh, okay, say that here. I'm, I'm telling the boss, you can't say Jesus here. Uh-uh, don't do that. You know what I'm talking about. And the truth spoken of here that has to define our worship, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the only, the I am that I am. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the God. This is the truth by which we're talking about. And yet... How many times this gets obscured? Well, how about the, how about the God of Islam? Or how about Buddha? Or how about Hinduism? Or how about this over here and this, that, and the other? Let me give you a testimony from the first service. First service, just a couple hours ago, was preaching in this exact same spot. And a young man was here whose family, who, who was a family member, has been here for a few weeks, wrestling with Islam. Heard this message, raised his hand and accepted Christ in the first service two hours ago. That's what happens when truth gets proclaimed. But let me tell you what happens when we get confused. Romans 1, verses 20 and 21. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. But it goes on. For God, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. You see, when there's a a problem with identification. Yeah, it says they knew God, but they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Let me say this. You can't know God truly and not give thanks to him. When you really know God, worship has to be the next step. It's the next step. When true revelation of who this God is really begins to hit us, it's an all-out assault against everything that we thought we knew. Worship has to come forth. It says they didn't give thanks to him. And so what happens? Their thinking became futile and their hearts were darkened. See, we get stupid when this happens. Just what happens. And God delights in showdowns and throwdowns with other gods. He loves it. Bring it. Just bring it. I'm your huckleberry. God loves this stuff. First Kings 18. Mount Carmel. You know the story. Prophets of Baal. And Elijah finally, he just had enough with Ahab and all of this foolishness. And he said, okay, here we go. How long will you waver between two opinions? 
If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. And you know the story that happens next. They set up a little experiment. They have a worship service and they prepare sacrifice in the prophets of Baal. They get their worship team out. They get their dancers and they begin to go at it. And nothing happens. And then Elijah steps forward and he says, and he does, prepares an altar and pours water all over it just to make it a little bit more interesting. <laughs> and he steps forward. Now, if Pastor Robert or myself had been in that moment, our prayer would have sounded like this. Help me! <laughs> Do not make me look bad up here. These people are already tired, they're embarrassed, and this is not going to be good if you don't show up. I mean, I would have been all about me in that moment. Elijah prays this prayer. He says, you are God, and I am your servant. I mean, talk about some deep theology. That's as deep as it gets. You are God, and I am your servant. I've done all these things at your command. And now, let it be known today that you are God in Israel. And that you are turning these people's hearts back to you. And I mean, he hadn't finished talking and fire fell out of heaven. Consumed the sacrifice, licked up the water. And it wasn't too much longer after that that everybody was on their face saying, Not me, God. Help me. Not the fire. Anything but the fire. Oh, the Lord, he is God. Repentance broke out. They had church. God's not afraid of a little throwdown. Philistines captured the ark, 1 Samuel 5. And they put the ark in Dagon's temple. Dagon was one of their false gods. Put the ark there, and next morning they come, and Dagon is falling over in front of the ark. On his face. <laughs> so they propped him up. Let me tell you, any God you've got to prop back up or stand back up? Can I help you? He's not much God at all. Well, I, I, need, to, I need to create a little apology for my God here. He uh, lost his balance. So they prop him back up. They come back the next morning. Not only is he there back on his face, but his head's broken off and his hands are broken off. And this is just the Ark of the Covenant. You see, God never shares his glory with other gods. But listen to me carefully, saints. He also never shares his glory with men who try and take his glory upon themselves. Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar. He's having a moment of reflection in Daniel 4. He's on this roof and looking around. He says, is this not the great Babylon? I've built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Scripture says the words weren't off of his lips before heaven came down and says, gotcha, buddy. You're going crazy now. I'm going to make you into livestock. I'm going to strip everything away from you. You're going to feel the dew on your back, and you're going to eat grass for a while. You see, when we take glory on ourselves that belongs on God, it makes us stupid. It makes us crazy. 
You see men and women that sadly they get power hungry all of a sudden. That They started out giving God the honoring God the glory and all of a sudden it's something, well I did it. And it's interesting that what turned, it says at the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar raised his eyes toward heaven. He wasn't looking at himself anymore. He wasn't looking around at what he had, quote, built with his hands. He says, my sanity was restored. And he begins to pray this prayer. God, you're it. I'm not, in essence. You see, man is designed to reflect the glory of God, never to absorb the glory of God. Hear me. The moon has no light of its own. The moon revolves, does it not, around something bigger than itself. It reflects the light of the sun. You and I were never intended to be a light source. You and I were intended to reflect something. Never to absorb the glory of God or think that light emanates from us. But when Scripture talks about us being lights, we're reflecting something much greater than ourselves. 2 Corinthians 3 says, We who with unveiled faces all reflect, what? The Lord's glory. We're being changed into something as that happens. This is the God or. That's pretty clear for most of us. But the second one's a little trickier. It's what I call God and. God and. Someone told me once that there are roughly 50,000 known gods in Japan. They are a polytheistic culture. And that bringing Jesus to the equation is not the, not the problem. They're happy to put Jesus up there with the other 50,000. The challenge is renouncing the other 50,000 and serving just the one God. This, this becomes the issue. And we find that Jesus' ministry was ultimately about bringing glory to the Father. So, well, I thought he came to defeat the works of the devil. He did. I thought he came as an atoning work, atoning sacrifice for your sin and mine. He did. But ultimately, the ministry of Jesus was to reflect the glory of the Father and to bring glory back to him. Philippians 2 says, who being in the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Making himself nothing taking on the form of a servant. He understood something. John 14, which we love this passage of Scripture, particularly as charismatics. Verses 12 through 14. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing and even greater things than these. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I'll do whatever you ask in my name. Yes. Yes. So this Father, Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. But we miss. We miss. We like to ask and get part. Name it, claim it, blab it, grab it. We like that. Declare, decree. We got our own words that every generation makes up. You with me? But do you realize that when God answers a prayer, it's not just so you can get your bill paid or your body healed. Listen to me. So that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Imagine how that would revolutionize how we approach God with our request rather than a what about Bob moment, right? You know, me, 
help me, mine. It would be God for your glory. Let this be done. Oh, my. You say, well, but the net is I still get my stuff. It's not what this is about. It is about God being glorified as a result of this. John the Baptist understood this. It was never intended to be Jesus and John. Yeah, here they are now, Jesus and John. You know, I mean, it's not a, it's, it, it, he understood something. John understood the bridegroom is here. I've got to get out of the way. This is not Jesus and John. I've got to decrease so that he can do what? Increase. Years ago, I, there was a precious woman in the church that I pastored in North Carolina, and she, she got cancer. We prayed and stood with her and her family, and God healed her. It's tremendous. And she got up to testify before the church one Sunday, and Again, I need to explain this to my African-American friends, but if you drink enough carrot juice and you white, you can turn orange. Oh, God is right. It is ugly. It's just like really weird Halloween freakish kind of weird. You know what I'm saying? I mean, your hands turn orange. Your whole skin takes on this kind of orange glow. I mean, it's just wrong. It looks like you got the wrong shade of tanner or something, you know? I mean, it's just, it's just ugly. And these folk had turned orange because they were, they were juicing like 20 pounds of carrots a day. And so my orange friend got in front of the church <laughs> and began to testify about her healing. And in all her orangeness, she was talking about, you know, and you, when you eat right and you juice this and these carrots and this, that, and the other. And I took her husband to lunch a couple of days later. I said, you need to decide. Did Jesus heal your wife or did carrots heal your wife? You need to figure that out. My covenant friend of many years came home from the hospital on Monday. Duke Bendix is home. I honor the doctors, the medical community that oversaw his care, but Jesus healed him. Do you see the distinction here? We can give honor where honors due when it comes right down to it. It wasn't skilled surgeons. It wasn't great nursing. It wasn't wonderful pharmaceuticals. Jesus raised my man up. And if I had another hour, I could recount to you all the little miracles that happened from the moment that the ambulance got called to the, to this ambulance driver saying, you know, I know I'm not supposed to, but I'm going to take you over to this hospital instead of this hospital. The miracle started in the direction the ambulance went. And that's glory to God right there. He said, oh, that's just a coincidence. No, it's not. He was just a really nice ambulance driver. No, he wasn't. God decided where our friend needed to go. 
And you and I need to figure out, is it God and or is it just God alone? Well, you know, this economy's picking up and therefore my investments are coming back. And well, you know, business is this, that and the other. Well, you know, the doctor finally diagnosed that thing and he got me. Let me just tell you, you need to decide real quick. Because that's my third point, last point. It is God alone. And hear me. God will happily jam you up. Happily. Paint you into a corner that the doctors say, stage four, go home, put your affairs in order and call hospice. Your financial advisor says, just pick an odd number, 7, 11, or 13, but you're done. You're finished. And, and God, will, God will put us many times in these impossible places. Like Elijah on Carmel to say, I'm going to show you something now. Because I don't share my glory. I'm going to put you in a place that there's no way in the world no one's going to take any credit for this but me. But what if we could live our life in such a way that we wouldn't have to get jammed up to figure that out? What if we could start there motivationally? God, for your glory. That we would be motivated like Jesus. Jesus had one thing on his mind. It wasn't how much ministry can I execute today. Jesus had one thing on his mind. How can I bring the greatest glory to the Father in this moment? Folk were, folk were ragging him about Lazarus. Where have you been? The one you loved. What's wrong with you? You lost your mind. Jesus stepped in in that situation and he began to weep. But he realized it was his delay that was going to bring the Father the greatest glory that rather than healing, it was going to be resurrection. And we're trying to get our head all wrapped around sometimes how God's going to do something. Let me tell you how God's going to do it in a way that brings the greatest glory to him. That's how he's going to do it. Isaiah 42, I will not give my glory to another. It's real simple. So here's a question in closing. Is it God or is it you? Well, God, I, I want a little credit for this. I bought one of these chairs. My precious. <laughs> right, thank you. But who gave you the power to create wealth to buy one of these chairs? Who moved on your employer to give you favor who hadn't looked at you in five years except crossways to give you that raise or that bonus so that you can buy five of these chairs? And as we move into that room, oh, look at the room that we built. Please don't do that. 
You didn't build that for God. God built it for you. And let's move in there thanking God. It says, unless God builds the house, the labors labor in vain. Don't hear the wrong thing. Thank you for responding, being faithful. But when it's all said and done, I'm not looking at figuring out who bought the most chairs or who gave the most money and they get the biggest. Uh-uh. It's going to be God, you did this. You defied the impossible. When everybody said from accountants to bankers, you'll never do it. And we were backed into that corner. Watch my God. And in that moment, he gets the glory. Soli Deo Gloria. Pray with me. Lord, help us today. Lord, every one of us have a place that Lord, we, we need you to show up. But God, as worshipers that you're looking for, let us be men and women who can inscribe upon our life SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. That becomes the motivation for what and what we do and how we do it and when we do it and why we do it. God, what brings you the greatest glory in this decision?